Episode number 34 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschel. This is a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. Please subscribe to the podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. We like our music to have elements of familiarity so that we can recognize it and memorize it and dance to it. And it's familiar, but we also like enough novelty there that it keeps us mentally interested. It's the same thing with food. Uh, Some people are foodies and they have an appetite for really unusual flavors and tastes. Some people just want to eat, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich every day and they're fine. Most of us like the middle ground where we get one or two new flavors. Maybe it's kale or some, you know, quinoa or sesame ginger or something or other, coupled with flavors we know really well. Susan Rogers is fascinated with the science around music making and appreciation. After dropping out of high school, she taught herself audio technology and was ultimately hired by Prince just before he recorded Purple Rain. Susan Rogers engineered that album and several other Prince releases before working with artists such as David Byrne, Bare Naked Ladies, Lori Anderson, The Jacksons, and a slew of others. So what did she do after a couple of decades of making platinum records? Well, she went back to school, of course, pursuing neuroscience and winding up with a PhD in psychology. And now she's on the faculty at Berklee College of Music, teaching record production, psychoacoustics, and music perception, among other subjects. Susan's a lot of fun to talk to and has a way of breaking down complicated scientific and musical concepts in a way that anyone can understand. I really love talking to her. Here's some of what we talked about. She discussed what makes for the perfect pop song. Also, the insane demands of being a full-time Prince employee and why she's hopeful about the future of music. Susan Rogers, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm really happy to be here. I look forward to chatting with you. So a few years ago at Berkeley, where we both teach, uh, NPR and Bob Boylan, All Songs Considered, came up, and they had this listening party at Berkeley. It was really fun. We listened to a lot of music. We talked about it. There was a panel that you were on with some other folks. I wanted to ask about one particular thing right now that came up in that. You said that what makes for the perfect pop song is striking the right balance between simplicity and complexity. I wonder if you could dig into that a little more, explain what's behind that idea. Right. When we, um, I was exposed to this when I was in grad school and uh, taking all these psychology classes. So when we map human response to a stimulus, whether it's food or music or something like that, we know that we like to be moderately aroused. Anything that is too arousing is going to be aversive. Uh, you don't you don't like it. It's, it's bothering you too much. But anything that's not arousing enough is boring. So if you picture a graph and picture the x-axis is complexity, stimulus complexity, and the far right is most complex and the far left is most simple. Now on the y-axis, picture record sales pop music strikes that perfect balance at the top of that bell curve of simplicity versus complexity. Now, what would be considered complex in music, many factors, but the rookie mistake that a lot of beginning musicians do is it's just too many changes. It mm-hmm. just goes too from an A chords. section to a B section, and uh, then there's a C section, and then it goes to a D, and then it goes to a D. It's like, is there a theme here? You know, what are you trying to say, buddy? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's too much complexity. Too much simplicity is uh, children's music. Music that is just too predictable. I love you. You love me. We're yeah. a happy family. Yes, I <laughs> know you're right. You're going to rhyme glove with dove. I can yeah. just and love. So I can, I can just see it coming. So uh, we like our music to have elements of familiarity so that we can recognize it and memorize it and dance to it. And it's familiar, but we also like enough novelty there that it keeps us mentally interested. It's the same thing with food. Uh, Some people are foodies and they have an appetite for really unusual flavors and tastes. Some people just want to eat, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich every day and they're fine. Most of us like the middle ground where we get one or two 
two new flavors. Maybe it's kale or some, you know, quinoa or sesame ginger or something or other, coupled with flavors we know really well. Right. So now if this sort of y-axis, x-axis dynamic uh, applies to popular music chiefly, do you, does this, how does this come into play in music where an artist might not be aiming for, say, the top of the charts? Do you think um, there's still sort of a factor there, a balance that somebody's trying to strike? Yeah, I talk with students on campus about finding your audience. And you have to recognize that if your music is a very strong flavor, just mm-hmm. like if your food, mm-hmm. chef, is a very strong flavor, it will only appeal to folks who like food that spicy or just yeah. whatever. So understand that the distribution of the audience is, think of it as data points. The majority of those data points will be stacked right under the mean, mm-hmm. uh, right under the that, that pop curve, the middle of that bell curve. Your audience, you need to know who they are and what they like and what they will tolerate. Mm-hmm. In fact, if your audience likes your advanced complexity, if you're Ornette Coleman, mm-hmm. if you're Anthony Braxton. Free jazz kind of thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. If that's what your audience likes, fine. But if keep making stimuli for them. But if you want to sell more records, you'll need to work with a producer who's going to help structure your music in such a way mm. that it's more accessible. When things are too complex, it's cognitively taxing when yeah. music is. You know, it takes too much work yeah. to, to figure it out, to follow it, to track it. Now, many listeners like high complexity in their music. I'm on the right side of that bell curve for sure. Mm-hmm. Throughout the history of my life, popular music, whatever's been popular, has always been, whether it was the Beatles or it was uh, ABBA, you know, in the 70s mm-hmm. or just whatever was popular, just a little too predictable mm-hmm. for me. Right. I like my music to uh, stimulate me more, whether it's lyrically, rhythmically, chordally, melodically. But... When it comes to food, I'd be okay with cheese pizza. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to movies, I like the art house films. Okay. When it comes to painting, I like abstract art. Mm. But we have various appetites for various stimuli. Uh, it's very important that record makers, whether it's the producer or the composer, the players, whatever, understand their audience and understand their own appetites. Because some people simply will not like what you do. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. You should expect that. So, you know, I wasn't planning to ask like a neuroscience question this early in the conversation, but since you just gave this profile of yourself of sort of desiring that complexity in almost all of these areas except for eating... Why do you think that is? Is there something about the brain or Susan Rogers in particular that has mm. uh, set up that proclivity? Or oh, I'm the same as everyone else. Um, there is some wonderful work by Peter Rentfro and Samuel Gosling out of the University of Texas. And the paper that rocked our world, by our I mean music perception and cognition researchers, came out in 2003. It's called the do re Mis of Everyday Listening. What was so great about it was it was a massive study involving thousands of participants and uh, examining the correlation between their personal music libraries and their personal music tastes as well as their personality profiles. And I'm not just talking one personality test here. I'm talking a battery of personality tests and IQ tests and all sorts of things, right? And this data is so good that it illustrates a really important point that what we like in music and other stimuli is often the end result of uh, personality traits. Personality traits are expressed um, starting with genes, but also depending on your environment. The genes are just, you know, a map. Like, you could go here if you wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, for most of us, environment is going to shape uh, which genes are expressed and when. But the bottom line is my particular wiring craves intellectual stimulation. I like it. It feels good. Uh, I like it in music, I like it in art, and I really like to study and learn new things. It feels good. Mm. In contrast, (laughs) my brothers crave physical stimulation. They're athletes, Uh and their bodies respond to moving and getting out there in the world, and they're physically very fit, and they were great athletes when they were young. I was the world's worst. I was Mm -hmm. the one who was chosen last for the team. Uh, My... um, 
I, I think people should consider it as though your brain is a, it's wired to be a, think of it like a certain kind of tool. And collectively, we all form a really nice toolbox. Let's say I've got a pair of wire cutters. You wouldn't use me to do the job uh-huh. that calls for a hammer. But I'm, I'm great. I'm your girl when it comes to cutting wires, mm-hmm. but not hammering things in the wall. So we, uh, we need to stop comparing ourselves to others in terms of what we're not and uh, em- embrace what we are. We like what we like just because of the, uh, certain appetites and, and the way we're wired. Here's a cool fact. This is really cool. I love this one. Um, this was shown by music and personality researcher uh, Adrian North. And he showed, this is really cool, identical personality profiles between two groups of music listeners, young men who listen to heavy metal and older men who listen to classical. Mm. And I love that that data because it fits with my own observations that our kids at Berkeley, the kids who are really into the hardcore and the heavy metal, are more active rather than passive listeners. They will put in the time and the cognitive effort to listen to a very long and very complex piece of music, whether it's Mars Volta or it's Converge or Glassjaw, that's rewarding to them. It feels good. Then when they get older and their metabolism slows down a little bit and their, their internal clock goes down a few ticks, they still want that intellectual stimulation. But it's not going to be heavy metal. It's going to be classical music. But they're still going to be active listeners who can track a piece of music where a theme emerges early and doesn't return until eight minutes later. It's the same kind of listener, just separated by age. So, you know, it's funny you just... uh Bringing up this idea of of your listening habits evolving over the course of a lifetime, I I had an observation last night. Uh, we went up to a show um, up up on the North Shore to hear a band, uh, and it was it, you know great artist. It was really loud in the room. The funny thing was, before we went to that show, we went to a bar across the street and heard a great local band. This was in Beverly, Tim Gearn, who plays here in town, and it was all acoustic. Um, uh, a guitar player, a mandolin player, and upright bass. And w- we we heard a half an hour of that band. Then we went across the street and heard this loud rock show. And then we both left early and came back because we our ears needed uh, some relief. And we had so much satisfaction mm-hmm. from the earlier part of the evening that we left this very expensive concert and went to hear the no-cover-charge band that we loved and we loved their songs. So is that also a thing uh, that happens to a lot of listeners over the course of their life, this desire to hear sort of uh, have less of an assault on one's ears? Or is that is that just a personal thing in my case, too? Well, the assault on the ears, as you as you as you notice, does require uh, a metabolism. Uh, the hair cells are in there in the cochlea, and they're firing like mad. And they're little; they're so so little. <clears throat> they can only do so much. And in order to keep firing, to keep stimulating, this is inside of the ear you're yes, talking about. Yeah, yeah, in the inner ear and the cochlea. In order to keep firing and keep being responsive, think of. Um, let me let me put. Let me interrupt myself (laughs) and uh, have you imagine other sensory modalities. When you walk into a room with really bright light, your eyes will adapt. It doesn't seem so bright after a while. Or walk into a room with a very strong smell. You will adapt to it. You'll get used to it. You won't notice it so much anymore. So the auditory system works the same way. It's it's adapting Mm -hmm. uh, and it's trying to keep feeding you information and there's it's being highly, highly stimulated. There's a little structure inside the cochlea called the stria vascularis. And that poor little thing, it's up against the wall, and its job is to feed um, charged ions and metabolites to the system so that it can keep firing, mm. so that it can give you nerve pulses. But the little sucker's going to get worn out. Uh, the yeah. hair cells are going to get worn out. It's going to run out of steam. If we are older we have less steam. Uh, Mm. If you're young, you can just keep that going. But when you're older, you're like, you know what? This is exhausting. It may not necessarily be mentally exhausting. You might enjoy it, but your body on some level is recognizing this is work. Yeah. And uh, you won't want to ingest as much Mm. of it, Mm -hmm. whereas something that isn't as ear-pounding is less work and is not stimulating enough to a young person. Yep. 
Interesting. Yeah. So, okay, that's reassuring. So it's not that I'm old. It's that my ear biology is aging a little sure. bit. Sure. Yeah. And you can think of it like running a marathon or, mm. or working out at the gym. Those young people are yeah. going to lift more and, and for longer uh, because they've got, they've got the metabolism that yeah. can support that. But um, they have that metabolism that is... <laughs> I love this because it's revenge. Uh, they're really great in the short term. They can they can generate more energy than we can. They have more energy than than we do. But it's older folks who can go the distance. Mm. Uh, the young people will burn out a little sooner. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we've got that going for us. <laughs> yeah, longevity. Okay. Yeah, we got that going for us. So uh, I want to ask about your wiring for a second here, uh, because when in an earlier conversation you and I had, uh, you talked about the fact that you briefly studied music, piano as a kid and you just you didn't get into it you sort of rejected music studies um didn't light you up but listening did and uh and you've had this whole career in music even though you didn't want to study it i wonder if you could talk about that about uh, because that's surprising i think when i first find out when i first found out that there are producers and engineers and other people involved in the music industry who didn't study music um I thought, well, how does how do you develop the language? How do you develop an understanding of what to hear and how to react? So I wonder if you could talk about how you developed in that way and became uh, somebody with highly developed taste and understanding of what works and what doesn't work in music and then applied that coming from that listener sort of design as a human being. It's a funny thing, and I've spent uh – majority of my life uh, listening uh, to music, but also pondering um, what's going on there. Um, When I was very young, I derived a great deal of pleasure from listening to records on the radio. It felt great. There's nothing else I wanted to do. So my parents bought a piano and they gave me music lessons. And it brought me no joy whatsoever. It certainly didn't bring them any joy (laughs) because I I wasn't... uh, it didn't feel musical to me in the same way that listening to music did. So they uh, they let me go. They let me go after a year and a half or so, maybe two years. And, and then a little bit later in my life, I tried to learn guitar at one point, tried to teach myself. I tried to learn saxophone. And again, there was nothing there. It, it wasn't feeding back to me anything that felt pleasurable at all the way that listening to music did. I've spent... As I said, a long time thinking about what that means. Recently, I have come to the conclusion, I'm going to throw this thesis out there, that listening is um, is musicianship hmm. in a way. Because, think about it, uh, painting... Uh, a painting, visual art, is painted on a, on a canvas, on a physical canvas. And y- you can view a painting in just a matter of milliseconds. If you just see it for a few milliseconds, you can probably report in many cases what was represented on that canvas. But the canvas of sound is a human brain. Music is painted over time. It needs time to evolve. So music needs a brain to listen to it for it to exist Mm. as music as we know it. So listening to music is actually completing the process of what music is. It's Uh. completing the transfer function because (laughs) that pattern of neural activity that started with a songwriter was then extended to and embellished with a producer and with the band, which became a recording. That pattern of electrical activity, neurochemical electrical activity in their brains becomes, when you listen to it, the same pattern in your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, with that exact same pattern, what are you going to do with it? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to interpret it according to how your brain likes it or mm. thinks it is. So, what you're going to do, in my case, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say I'm, uh, let's say I'm 17 years old and I'm listening to Led Zeppelin. Here's what I did. I listened to Led Zeppelin and I knew what drums looked like. I knew what guitars and basses look like. I knew what all the guys in the band look like. So I have the option of interpreting that I'm sitting right there Hmm. at the concert and they're playing to me. Or I can imagine that I'm in the studio and I'm recording them. (laughs) I can imagine if I want to, I can fantasize that's me on guitar. That's me on vocals. Maybe that's me on drums. Uh, I, I can 
I can link myself through imagination to a world that actually does exist. These are real people, and they make real music, and I can insert myself into that world through the power of imagination, kind of like uh, viewing a realistic painting, whether it's Rembrandt or John Singer Sargent, and you can you know what it's representing. You can become part of it. In contrast, uh, I, I mentioned to you earlier that I'm writing a book currently, and I have a, a, a co-author. He has a very different response when he listens to music. He's listening for music that matches his imaginary world. He's got an imagination that might be thinking of outer space or it might be thinking of some abstract mathematic thought or whatever it is. And when he puts on certain pieces of music, it suddenly seems to fit the imaginary world that he has just constructed. Mm. So music listening is um, very um, individual for each person. What it is we're doing is complementing our brain when it goes out to play. When it fantasizes, when it has a little bit of fun. (laughs) So the listener is essential in the completion of the whole musical process. It's it's if I understand what you're saying, uh, it's the the listener helps kind of close the loop on the whole thing, and and that's different. Or is it the same as what happens when you look at a painting? Is that still sort of a closing-the-loop situation? Oh, what made me think this is because it is the same, and Mm. it was the great Eric Kandel who won the Nobel Prize uh, many years ago for his work on on neuroscience and memory and how that works. Eric Kandel wrote a beautiful little book called Reductionism in Art and Brain Science. He's just one of my favorite geniuses. And he was talking about abstract versus realistic paintings, and he was talking about it from the perspective of both painting and art and brain science because that's what he does. So when you look at a realistic painting, Maxfield Parrish, let's say, or just anybody that you like, it's showing you a world. Mm -hmm. It's representational, a real world that exists somewhere but is perhaps a little bit more beautiful or interesting. But when you look at Piet Mondrian and you see all right, there's rectangles and there's straight lines and this is a tree. Or this is Broadway boogie. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, it doesn't look anything like New York, <laughs> but I get it. It feels like New York. Uh, mm-hmm. What Eric Kandel is saying is what the viewer has to do is you have to interpret. And that makes you part of it, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You're, you're completing the picture by... Your imagination that's seeing that tree in those straight lines and those rectangles or seeing Times Square mm. in those three primary colors and black and white. Can you do it? Can you see it? Do you, do you enjoy it? Now let's go even further into abstraction. Jackson Pollock, um, what did they the, the derisively called Jack the Dripper? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> throwing paint all over the canvas or just dripping it from a, from a brush sometimes. You just... Yeah. Yeah, do you see it or don't you? Personally, I'm a big fan of abstract art. I love Cy Twombly, mm-hmm. Jean Dubuffet, Sigmar Polk. That stuff lights my Christmas tree mm-hmm. because I'm so excited by the mind that thought of that. And I feel as though I can see it. I can see it. I see what you were going All for. Right. I get it. Now, where are we in music? Have we done that? Mm. Well, maybe. It In music, it, it really does depend on the interpreter. When uh, my friend listens to jazz, it launches his fantasies of the deep thoughts he's thinking. He's at Harvard. He gets paid to think deep Mm. thoughts. When I listen to jazz, it launches me into the real world of these incredible players. Mm. In contrast, when he listens to classical, he imagines being in the audience or maybe being the conductor. When I listen to classical, I don't don't imagine that at all. It launches my fantasies. Mm. So so abstract versus reality in music listening is probably much more individualistic right. than it is in painting. Okay, so to uh, l- to talk about lighting up your Christmas tree in music for a second, let's talk about Prince for a moment. Um, you were self-trained, self-taught as an audio technician and a sound engineer. You learned from Army manuals. It's a fascinating story. But I want to go right into when you began that job and you moved to Minneapolis and you were his audio technician, Prince's audio technician, just before the Purple Rain sessions. So how did your role begin and then evolve as you were working with Prince? 
in those early days. Oh, it was so wonderful. Boy, talk about a dream come true. So I was working for uh, Crosby, Stills & Nash. They owned a studio called Rudy Records in Hollywood, and uh, it was basically owned by Graham and David. And I was their studio maintenance tech, but I heard through the professional grapevine that Prince was looking for a technician. Prince Mm -hmm. had put the word out to his management, who were based in L.A., and they put the word out to Westlake Audio, who spread the word. Now, um, most audio technicians out there in L.A., they're not going to leave L.A. and go to Minneapolis. But Prince was my favorite artist in the whole world. So the instant I heard about that job, I told the folks at Westlake, please, please, please consider me. I want that gig. So they did, and uh, and I I got the job, and I moved to Minneapolis as Prince's technician. That's what he had asked for. And my task, one of my first tasks, was to pull out an old recording console in his home studio and uh, wire up another one and do some repairs on the tape machine and this and that that needed to be fixed and whatever. But that took about a week or so. When I was done with that, uh, he asked me to set up a microphone Mm -hmm. because he was going to record something. And I, I was really afraid to set this up because I expected at any moment the engineer was going to walk through the door because mm-hmm. the technician doesn't set up a microphone. You repair the microphone. Right. But it would be like uh, the guy who sets up or or repairs a, a movie camera all of a sudden getting behind it and shooting the film. Like, you, you just, that's, that's not cool. <laughs> you don't do that. Uh, but he, he was my boss, and he asked me to set up the mic. And then uh, when no engineer came in, I, I, he kind of was – saying things like, you know, let's get going. And finally I said to him, well, who's going to record it? And he said, you. And I went, all right. (laughs) (laughs) No hesitation, huh? Oh, hell no. (laughs) No. uh, uh, Succeed or fail, I was going for it because who wouldn't? Uh, The very first thing we recorded was a vocal with Jill Jones, and the song was Mia Boca on her Jill Jones album. Mm -hmm. But from there, he had me do the tasks of technician and engineer, after Purple Rain was finished and we were on the Purple Rain tour, he hired a technician who was far more qualified than I, um, Sal Greco from Electric Lady in New York. Sal came along, took over the tech duties, and mm. I was in the engineering chair. Uh, that, that worked out just really fine for me. Mm, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and what a career that you've had. So what was he like to work with? What were his work habits? He was incredibly productive, and so you kind of had to stay in step with him and had this bird's-eye view of his creative process. So what was how did he work? He was extraordinarily creative. Uh, it wasn't until fairly recently that I started reading about and researching the neurobiology of creativity that I came to understand that he and very few other artists I've worked with perhaps had a couple of leaky faucets in a couple of circuits, brain circuits, Mm. that are associated with creativity. Most of us slam the gate shut as soon as we've got a good idea because creativity is hard work. Uh, But these gates, uh, the right precuneus is one circuit and the right parietotemporal junction is another one. Anyway, there's a couple of gates there. And folks who are highly creative show reduced deactivation in these circuits, meaning they just keep those gates open. Hmm. So I believe Prince was one of those folks who um, the outcome of these gates being open or being leaky is that new ideas just keep coming and coming and coming. They don't shut those gates. And the other thing is they're open to more possibilities and they uh, are less likely to draw hard lines between relevant and irrelevant information. Mm -hmm. They consider more things. Hmm. So all that being said, that's on a brain science perspective uh, helpful in explaining why the guy had to work constantly Hmm. because the new ideas just kept coming and because he didn't write music. He didn't demo them either. So if he's writing something on piano, he needs to record it immediately mm. while it's fresh in his head. he If he's got the band around, he's going to call the band together and then they're going to play everything. He'll do the arrangement and rehearsal and we were set up so that we could record rehearsal. But if the band isn't around, he's playing everything himself. Mm. Starting with the drums, whether it's uh, he's sitting on the acoustic drum kit or he's programming the drum machine, the drums go down, you hand him the bass, he puts down the bass part, he sits at his keys or picks up the guitar, he adds those parts, he does the lead vocal, he does the backing vocal. It says 
if he's got the entire arrangement complete in his head wow. almost, and it's just bam, 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 wow. bam. That would take place over the course of one very long session because mm-hmm. I would be with him actually mixing at the same time as these things are coming together. As he's manipulating the instruments, I've, I've got the console, so mm-hmm. I can be, uh, you know, dialing stuff in and tweaking and playing around with stuff. Then you print a mix... And occasionally it would happen. You'd print that mix and you'd be cleaning up and he'd come back into the studio and he'd say, fresh tape. <laughs> he had another idea and you'd go around again. So you start uh, over completely. Start over yeah. completely from scratch. So yeah. a 48-hour session was not uncommon oh being up for two days. Uh, no sleep. No sleep. No, no. Just oh, keep, you just keep on going. Uh, the 24-hour the session was much more common. Wow. So how did you cope with that? Or I mean, were you sort of on call? Would, the, would you be asleep in the middle of the night and the phone would ring and you'd have to run over to the studio and just start setting up microphones? To this day, I hate the sound of a ringing telephone <laughs> because it would interrupt what few hours of sleep I had. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I put up with it with a smile because mm-hmm. uh, one, I was exactly where um, on planet Earth I wanted to be. Right. I'm working for my favorite artist in the whole world. And on some level, this is funny. It's funny because who does this? Yeah. And and you feel like a little kid on some ride and you're just like, I'm going for it. For as long as this ride lasts, mm. I'm going for it. Because yeah. you know it can't last forever. Right. We were in our 20s. We had the energy uh, of, a young, of young people. And we had that clear-headed ether of youth, it's been called. Your head is just kind of... In the clouds. On some level, you think, oh, I can totally do this. Mm-hmm. And you get a little bit older and you realize, like, no, this is punishing. I can't go much longer. Right. But at that time, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, I'm doing this. Well, and you worked on huge records. And, yeah. Um, right through that whole period. It was five and a half years you worked with Prince? No, like I was with him. It felt it felt much longer. But I was actually with him just a little over four years. Four years. August okay. of 83 until late 87. Okay. Uh, and then you worked with many other bands, uh, you know, David Byrne and Tricky and Laurie Anderson, Paul Westerberg, Geggy Todd, Tevin Campbell, Bare Naked Ladies. And there's so many. I'm going to include links uh, on the show notes for this episode to some of these uh, scholars you've talked about in these books as well as your, your credits list. But after all these years of recording, you decided to quit and go get a Ph.D. in a scientific discipline. So – I'm wondering what led to that decision and how you sort of figured out what you wanted to study. Well, um, I felt when I was a child, I had this strong calling for recorded music as opposed to myself writing it or playing it or performing it. It was just this calling, this attraction, like magnetic shove for recorded music. And as I got into my 30s and my career was going along, I began to feel the same thing. Only, um, I, I say that with some hesitation because I didn't ask for it, but it just started to come. Uh, I, I was thinking more and more and more about the natural world and cause and effect. And, and then eventually I began to picture a laboratory with microscopes and <laughs> Petri dishes. And uh, I began to think, you know, I'd really enjoy the work of scientific exploration. I didn't know how I would enjoy it because I had never even finished high school, but it just felt like, boy, I, that that feels, I think that'd be great. And the calling just started getting stronger and stronger. By the time I was in my mid-40s, I recognized it wasn't going to go away. And I also recognized it was pretty good timing because at that point, I was no longer listening to college radio anymore. Mm-hmm. My taste was starting to, to age. I was starting to enjoy jazz more and mm-hmm. m- different different musical forms that were not pop music or college radio. So as fate would have it, the talk about cause and effect, the cause of me leaving the music business um, was that I had a hit record with Bare Naked Ladies uh. in the late 90s, back in the day before file sharing, when mm. you'd still get a nice big royalty check from that. Wow. So with that royalty check, I had enough money that I could go to college for four years, earn an undergrad degree, and then I went straight into grad school and got the PhD. 
I see. So and it, and when that whole process started, you didn't even have your high school diploma, so you had to sort of get that squared away too, or you just plunged into undergrad. Yeah, I had to. I had to earn a high school diploma when I was very young. We had a, a good childhood, but a difficult one because my mother passed away after a long illness mm. when um, I was just fourteen, and my brothers were younger. So, I uh, ultimately left school just to. Just because I think I just grew up really, really fast. So I never got to finish school, high school. So the first order of business after I decided to leave the music business was to earn a a GED. And I went to the little night classes and Mm. I got my little GED and uh, and that was very fun. Mm. Okay, all right, maybe I can do this. That didn't take that long. And then the next order of business was to take the ACT to see Mm. if I could get into a university. And I was in Minnesota at the time, so I wanted the University of Minnesota. And I was really afraid. I thought, I'm 44. Can I learn new things? But as I found out later, anytime you study anything that's highly complex in your youth, you're forming a neural infrastructure that can support advanced thinking. Mm-hmm. at any age. Mm-hmm. So I laid down the pipe when I was young and I was studying audio electronics yeah, and working really yeah. yeah, working really hard to be an audio technician and understand electronics. That at that young age and that is young as far as a brain's wiring is concerned, um, it laid down some pipe that was still mm-hmm. there and it's like sure, you want to learn some new facts, go knock mm-hmm. yourself out. So college actually it worked out really well. It was it was pretty easy. Can you boil down what you learned or discovered or wrote about uh, through your uh, your studies in graduate school? Well, I uh, in graduate school, I initially uh, was interested in um, special populations and special abilities. I was interested in absolute pitch perception. I was interested in a uh, folks who have a disorder called Williams syndrome, mm-hmm. which is caused by a micro deletion on chromosome seven, and uh, these folks end up being uh, highly musical. Mm-hmm people, extraordinarily musical people. So that's why I applied to Daniel Levitin's lab, because he had written papers on absolute pitch perception and on Williams syndrome. I he, thought... You know, he studied... He, I just wanted to mention, he's he's a guy who studied music in the brain, and he was one of your teachers there? He was well? my advisor okay. at at, uh, at McGill University. Um, Daniel Levitin wrote This Is Your Brain on mm-hmm. Music, which became a New York Times bestseller. But at the time that I applied to study with him, he hadn't written the book yet, But uh, I was accepted into McGill, and I chose Daniel Levitin because he had worked in the music business, and I knew that he would know how where to put me. Uh, Mm. He would know what kind of thinker I was and what life experiences I had had, and he could he could help me finish my PhD working on something that uh, that I could bring a unique perspective to. Because I'm I was going to be 52 Mm -hmm. when I got that PhD, so if I'm going to make a contribution, I better use what I already have. So uh, in in his laboratory, I, I switched uh, I, my, my interests. Um, I became very interested in the difference between consonance and dissonance. And as one of my advisors, uh, Dr. Evan Balaban, said, what does the brain care? Does, does the brain really give a crap the difference between a tritone and an octave? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just us. You know, mm-hmm. Maybe it's just culture. So I thought, yeah. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. So that formed the question of my doctoral thesis. Uh, I designed a, an auditory short-term memory task to throw a whole lot of musical intervals at musicians and non-musicians in a running memory task just to see if some would be cognitively easier to process than others. And would it differ between musicians and non-musicians? Mm. Uh, it, the ability to perceive intervals. That was what you No, were the ability to retain them in ah. auditory short-term memory. Mm-hmm. In other words, ask your brain to do a whole lot of work with these intervals. Is there a difference between consonance and dissonance? Mm-hmm. Does it have to work harder for dissonance? Does mm-hmm. it have to work harder for consonance? Does the brain care if it's performing the same operation on a tritone or a minor seventh or a, a perfect fifth? or a minor six, if it's having to perform the same operation, which is a non-musical operation, just a mental operation, mm-hmm. on all of these objects, will it show a distinction? And the answer was a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't a big, <laughs> exciting finding. Okay. But it, what it showed was the one interval that performed the worst was the octave. Hmm. 
no doubt, and especially in uh, in non-musicians, no doubt because it's the uh, easiest to process. It's just yeah. two frequencies separated by a ratio note. of one to two. Yeah, it's right. the same pitch chroma. So uh, that that w- people did not retain that in short-term memory. In other words, they didn't devote a lot of neural resources mm-hmm. to hanging on to it because it was so simple. What they did spend more time processing were the tritones and the major seconds and some mm-hmm. of the more dissonant intervals. This... Um, this hypothesis was supported that dissonance might be a little bit more um, interesting to a brain because it's unusual. We evolved to notice unusual things mm. for our survival. We should. Yeah. So when you go to a weird chord change or in music, if you suddenly hear an unusual timbre, some on some part of your brain is going to perk up and go, what's that? As you sit here now... You know, you, you went through this career as a, as a sound engineer, and then you became a scientist, and then a teacher. When you look at what you were just talking about, what you studied, and what you continue to study and learn, because I know you haven't stopped, um, how does that reflect back to the music that you recorded and the conversations you have with young musicians now? How does all this kind of connect for you? I have some greater understanding about what I was doing, whether it was as a mixer or as an engineer or as a producer and giving advice. I can look back and reverse engineer it and go, okay, so that's that was good that I thought of that, or uh, I see what I was doing there. That all makes sense. But that's definitely reverse engineering because at the time I did not know. I hadn't, At the time I was making records, I hadn't had any um, brain training. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing what we all do when we make records. So the reverse engineering is actually pretty easy. You're just taking, lifting the wires one at a time and going, yeah, here's what happens if that doesn't connect. Uh, But what is very enjoyable for me is having looked at music from a scientific perspective and an artistic perspective, I can now talk with my students about it in a new way. I'll tell you something that happened in class just the other day. This was so beautiful. And it illustrates the difference between how a musician thinks and how a non-musician thinks. So a student is up there, and he played his his work in progress, and it sounded great in front of the class, and we all commented on it. And then one student said, uh, he's a really sharp guy named Jared, he said, I I think uh, that dissonant chord that you played, there was that F sharp in there, and it just was a little bit too dissonant, and I I think it was distracting to me. I, I would advise you to reduce the level of that that F sharp because it's just mm-hmm. too dissonant. Another kid sitting in front of him turns around and looks at him and says, no, it wasn't an F sharp, it was a G, but I don't think that was the dissonant note. I think it was the B. <laughs> and I just, I feel like a, a, a proud parent. I just swell with pride. Like, oh, these kids, aren't they wonderful? They're so smart. They so know so much good stuff because I don't know that at all. Right. But then I yeah. was able to turn to the student and say, yeah, that dissonant chord was rude. <laughs> so... To them, to musicians, they can listen analytically. They can assign labels to what they're hearing. They also have the neural architecture that they laid down from all their musical studies to uh, hear a part, to resolve, they call it in psychoacoustics, the individual pitches in a chord. I can't do that because I don't have the pipe. I'm not a... Uh, not a musician. I didn't study tones in isolation aside from the little bit of piano that I had. It wasn't nearly enough to give me the auditory wiring that they have. So what I can do is listen synthetically to the global whole, like non-musicians hear music. And I could hear that when it went to that one chord, there was that weird note in there. I don't know what it's called, but there was that weird note that just felt like, it, it, it felt like it was pushing me. It felt rude, Mm -hmm. and it was pushing me away. Mm -hmm. So as a record producer in the studio, when I worked with bands, I told them straight up, I am not a musician. I can never tell you what to do by going to your instrument and playing it. Uh, I can never explain what I'd like to hear in music theoretic terms, but I can listen as the audience, the average audience member, and tell you whether or not you're making a connection with me. Do I mm. believe you in that performance or not? Mm. Can I, can, did, did you convince me? Is that line, that lyric there, is that um, 
off-putting to me, or is that what makes you attractive? Here's another example. A student played his work in progress. It was really, really good, a high, fast-energy rock song. Mm-hmm. And it sounded, it sounded amazing. But one thing I noticed was that the singer was not out of breath at the end of the song. Hmm. He should have been out of breath. Hmm. I want to hear that he's really working at it. Uh. Come on, son. <laughs> Don't be lazy. Deliver for me because your drummer and your bass player and your guitar player are. Now, those subtle things I have since learned from being in school, that uh, those subtle gestures convey a lot of information mm. that the listener might not be consciously aware of, but we are subconsciously aware of. On some level, we know that if a singer's giving it his all, he better be panting. Mm-hmm. So, and the listener picks up on that. The listeners do. Yeah. And when we're um, doing what we always do, which is judging and categorizing music, it's based on these things. Mm-hmm. You can't always say why, mm-hmm. but something about it just isn't connecting with you. Now, it might not be your kind of music. Maybe that's why. But maybe it is your kind of music, but it's just not as good as the other guys. Mm-hmm. Why? This is the record producer's job to explore those things. It's fun now to look at them from a um, to have a more scientific explanation for yeah. what the producer is is a good producer is going to conclude. Do you see students taking an interest in the science of all of this and starting to apply that as they uh, act as producers and engineers? A little bit. Yeah. Like they find it interesting. Yeah. Uh, they are smart enough to know that they can't have the two careers simultaneously, mm-hmm. and that um, music is usually by, for, and about young people, popular music anyway. So they should do the music career first. But a lot of them do talk to me about the possibility mm-hmm. of grad school a little bit later on in mm-hmm. life, which is, I'm so happy to be able to say to them, that's doable. You could yeah. do that. I want to ask about a more general question about music. And because you've studied music cognition and music perception, what is it about music? And you could explain this in terms of science or emotion, but... You know, music's been around as long as any other manifestation of the human spirit, you know, uh, c- cave wall painting and drumming. I don't know exactly. Maybe you do how how old those things are in comparison to each other. But it's been around in some way or another as a form of communication and expression. What is it about music that continues to have such an impact on the lives of almost everybody who seems to walk around on the planet? Mm. That's such a good question. Uh, There are a number of explanations that are offered uh, as, none as a complete explanation, but there are a number of them and they all work together. For one thing, I didn't know this until fairly recently, sound, the auditory system, is our quickest modality. We process sound super fast, Mm. faster than vision for sure. As a signal, music is really easy. It's really easy, and we like it. Mm. So our auditory nerve bundle exits the cochlea and goes up to the auditory cortex, but along the way it has to go up through the brainstem, the auditory brainstem. Well, just it's a brainstem, and it processes auditory signals. That pathway is, as they say, richly endowed with opiate receptors. Mm. Uh, The auditory wiring has to go through the limbic system, and uh, sound is really effective getting us to feel something. Hmm. We're very attentive to it. Music is especially um, easy to process in some ways because typically it's got a, it's got a regular rhythm and a tempo. Hmm. So with that regular tempo, we can predict where events are going to occur. Hmm. Popular music, Western music anyway, typically we'll use like 4-4 four, four time um, and... Uh, it's pretty easy to count, so a measure is going to repeat after four. That's a pretty easy number to get to, and then you yeah. start all over again. <laughs> and things will usually repeat after eight bars. So it's segmented in such a way that uh, we know what's going to happen. A brain loves mm. knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It gives you a feeling of safety and security. So the rhythm helps with that. The tempos that we like best tend to be between 100 and 120 beats per minute. So it has nothing to do with our heart rate or anything like that. That fast tempo is really easy for our particular human bodies to move to. 
feels good. So an up-tempo song, something that's uh, at 120 beats per minute, is going to compel us to want to dance. Mm -hmm. When we hear a steady rhythm at a nice tempo we like, and just as an aside, when you ask people in the laboratory to just tap out a beat, just tap out a beat, they typically land around 100 beats per minute. Mm -hmm. Just feels good. Just feels about right. Anyway, when we're in that zone and we're moving in those regular, uh, that, that regular motion, we've got powerful and many connections between the auditory system and the motor system. And it's kind of a feedback loop. So our motor system is telling the auditory system, here's what to listen for because it's coming up. And the auditory system is saying, yeah, got it. That was right on the beat. This is awesome. That feels really good. It's kind of massaging a part of your brain that feels good. Now what happens is nervous systems oscillate at different rates throughout the day. Uh, You'll hear about being in an alpha state, which is a neural system oscillation between like 8 and 13 hertz roughly. You are calm and you are relaxed. Mm -hmm. But the next state above that is called the beta It's the beta frequency band. And that's between roughly 15 and 30 hertz. And then above that, above 30 hertz, you've got the gamma band activity when you're either cognitively or physically um, very, very aroused and, and, and expending a lot of energy. You'll be in that gamma band. But the sweet zone is the beta band. A little bit more aroused than like sleepy, but not hyper. Mm-hmm. like in that gamma band. It has been shown through the work of Ani Patel and Paul Iverson and others that music listening increases activity in that beta band. Mm-hmm. So music listening can bring us up, get, get, us, get our day started when we're just waking up in the morning, and it can calm us down mm-hmm. when we're really hyper. Yeah. It's really effective at that. Um, in addition... Uh, there are um, those higher-level cognitive processes going on. There are the personal associations. Music can remind us of people or situations or allow us to, as I said earlier, allow us to fantasize, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's all very satisfying. Um, It is is considered that ancient human beings perhaps uh, uh, evolved it, started with, a musy language that wasn't quite speech and it wasn't quite music. We made sounds Hmm. early on. We made pitch changes. So if you wanted to tell your little baby, oh, baby, I think you're a cute little baby, Hmm. you'll use a soft tone of voice. Mm -hmm. And if you want to alert your tribe members to danger, you'll use a different tone and a different amplitude. Eventually, let's picture this. Let's say an ancient proto-human has got enough... Speech, speech has evolved now, and uh, wants to tell the story, sitting around the campfire at night, wants to tell the story of the great hunt when they took down the giant beast. So Grog is there, and Grog is telling the story of the big hunt. Grog could have a more exciting story if Grog recruits a friend to add some sound effects. So it's first thing in the morning, and Grog is uh, talking about the, uh, it was a beautiful day. If you have a bone flute mm-hmm. and you can imitate the sound of the birds in the trees, high-pitched staccato, that's what happens on a really beautiful day when the sun is shining. It's also the sound of happy children because mm-hmm. little children have high voices and they're going to be excited and there's no danger around. It's okay for them to talk. So there's your friend on the bone flute and now Grog is telling you, oh, then the danger came. It was going to be a storm and he's got a, a log drum there or he's got something, a hollow log with skin stretched across it and he can imitate the rumble of the beasts or of the thunderheads, the clouds. It is supposed then that we began to realize, yeah, right, good. Uh, Words are information, but pitch changes and rhythm can set the context and eventually can describe how we're feeling. Mm. Just as birds do, for example, they they transmit information about where they are with their bird songs. But let's use a different animal now. A dog can bark and let you know it's happy, or a dog can whimper and let you know I don't you don't feel good right now. Mm-hmm. Stay back from me. We this led to a system of using pitch changes. Um, to convey, and amplitude changes and timing changes to convey how we were feeling. What you were just describing with 
your friend Grog there. It's, uh-huh. It sounded like a prehistoric podcast almost uh-huh. in a sense. And, and, and maybe this is a good place to kind of start to wrap this up. But, you know, you talked about the quickness of auditory perception. Now, podcasting and radio, which is a big obsession of mine, I've worked in radio uh, for a long time. We're making a podcast right now. So uh, music is not inherently a part of what we're doing, although I have a little bit of music that I use on this podcast. But our voices have certain musical qualities. We speak in musical. We take pauses. There are rhythms. There are melodies. Do those play a role or to what extent do those play a role in this sort of radio podcasting world, do you think? And, and, and I'm also just wondering about that as an auditory experience. Does that also have a leg up on some other things like reading a book that communicates stories and ideas like we are? Yeah. You know what I mean? Isn't that something? I read a quote a long time ago, and I cannot find it, so I can't attribute it to anyone. But this person, scientist, wrote, sound is a special form of touch. So timbre can feel good, or timbre can be aversive, the sound of someone's voice. You're correct that we do speak in patterns that are similar to musical patterns, and uh, we also speak in intervals. This is super cool. Hmm. So a very cleverly designed study about 10 years ago uh, took two groups of college students uh, who were always used in psychology experiments, and they had one group as pairs perform a task that turned out really, really well. They had the other group perform a task that was manipulated, the same task, but it was manipulated to turn out really badly. And the researchers recorded the voices of pairs of people when things were going well and when they were going badly. And what they found, awesome, was that when things are going well, people spoke in consonant intervals. Oh, wow. Perfect fourths. It's all That's... fine. <laughs> Everything's good. People spoke in consonant intervals, and when it was going badly, mm. they spoke in dissonant With intervals and minor more seconds. minors. Yeah. Right. Uh. So music has evolved to reflect how we speak, but speech has evolved also to mimic the intervals that convey feelings. Mm. Humans have two streams in the brain. Uh, one is a dorsal stream and the other is a ventral stream, which just refers to kind of where where the sound is going after it leaves the uh, auditory cortex. But um, one stream conveys the tone of our voices, conveys how we're feeling. The words convey the information. Humans aren't the only ones who can pick up on that. Dogs do, too. This was done in a recent study that uh, (laughs) – I love this so much – that looked at whether dogs could independently, as we do, process the intonation and the words. Mm. People always think their dogs, you know, oh, the words don't mean anything. Uh, He's just processing the tone of my voice. No, he's not. The words do mean something if baby knows certain words. So if uh, if you're saying, you did good dog, that's just the best little dog I've ever seen. If you use that and you say, you're just such a pile of shit and I can't (laughs) wait to take you, drop you off at the pound. Yeah, the same two regions of the brain that light up for us when we're feeling uh, we're processing emotion you know, down in the limbic system and when we're processing uh, information in the temporal lobe, dogs show a similar distinction. Mm, interesting. So this tells us that the brain evolved to get feeling and information from sound. A podcast is valuable in this sense because you're getting both streams Whereas when you read something, you're just getting the one, you're getting the information Mm -hmm. and not the subtext of what the speaker is uh, emphasizing or feeling or really wants you to know. Great. Well, that's great news for podcasters out there. Uh, so just one last question. Uh, wh- what are your thoughts on the state of the music industry? Are you hopeful about the, the future of music? I mean, there's a lot to consider, technology and genres and, and, and uh, the business. But uh, what, what's sort of your take on the state of music these days? Well, there was a lot of bad stuff uh, in the early days of file sharing and the money stream disappearing and record companies kind of going away. And, it, you know, Rome definitely was 
burnt. <laughs> but from the ashes, there's been wonderful stuff. Uh, I love what the youth of today are doing with sound design. I love that the youth of today are uh, not worried about getting behind the velvet rope that I and my colleagues had to work so hard to get behind. They're what like, do you mean by that? Well, in order to go into a recording studio in my day, you pretty much had to have a mm-hmm. record deal because a recording studio was so expensive. You had to be you had, you had to be on the other side of that velvet rope to be part mm-hmm. of the musical conversation. You had okay. to be a professional uh, producer or engineer or mixer or artist to be in the studios and to be making music that then became available for consumption. Amateurs just did not do this. There was no way that they could afford the studio and that they could sell records. But now... That velvet rope is still there. Mm -hmm. But the kids on the other side, thanks to the new technology, have got their laptops and they're like, out of hell with them. Who needs a label? Mm -hmm. Who needs a recording studio? I've got GarageBand. Mm -hmm. So the kids now are having the party on their side of the velvet rope, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful and democratic. Uh, It's leading to a lot of really bad music, but it's also leading to a lot of really good stuff too. So those folks on that side of the velvet rope don't have A&R. They typically don't have producers or experienced producers. They don't have experienced engineers or mixers. They'll figure it out. They're human beings just like we are. They'll figure it out. The other thing that's really interesting is artificial intelligence. Um, will machines make music that we respond to? I, I think the answer is probably yes. Wow. Because artificial intelligence is modeled on human behavior. Um, we are currently enjoying Game of Thrones and Star Wars and whatever these movies are. I don't. I know Game of Thrones. I don't know Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So we can watch actors, real human beings, on the back of a dragon or uh, fighting in outer space, space aliens. We're totally into it. Yeah. We like it. It is emotionally satisfying because it's got enough of a human component that we recognize it, but then it's also got all this novelty. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. The future of music will do the exact same thing. Combine... An artificial, unreal world, the world of sound design, with a human voice telling you a human story. Or maybe even with a machine voice telling you a human story that makes you go, yeah, you know, I, I, I watched the Lego movie or I watched, you know, whatever the animated Marvel superhero is. That guy doesn't exist, but I totally get it. Mm. It's close enough to human behavior that this is satisfying to me. Well, here's to uh, finding lots more to be satisfied by in the future. Susan, thank you so much for the conversation. We could go on forever (laughs) and ever. It's really interesting to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. And, uh, you know, really, thanks for having me on. And thanks, folks who might be interested in this. I enjoy talking about it, so I hope you enjoy listening. Learn more about Susan Rogers and her work by visiting the show notes page for this episode at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to the Media Narrative podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.